So Exodus 15, beginning at verse 1, down through verse 21. This is the holy word of the Lord God Almighty. Take care how we hear it, friends. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap, and the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are as still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inspired and inerrant word to us tonight. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Let's all pray again. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. As we hear your holy word, as we study it tonight, as it is proclaimed Write its truth upon our hearts. 
Open our ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. And hearing, gladly receiving. And gladly receiving, treasuring. And then treasuring, obeying. For our everlasting good and for your glory and all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, friends, what we have just read is a Holy Spirit-inspired summary of what we have been reading here in Exodus for the past three, four, five, maybe six weeks. It's a song. It's a hymn. It's a poetic summary of the glorious deliverance that the Lord has just accomplished for his people in the Exodus event. Now, Scripture loves to do this, and if you are a student of the Old Testament, if you're a student of Hebrew poetry and literature, or even just you know your Old Testament well from reading it over and over again through the years, you will know that particularly in the Hebrew Old Testament, it loves to do this. When an epic event takes place, when a significant event in redemptive history takes place, it is often recapitulated or retold or memorialized through a song of praise to the God who accomplished it. When a, when a song interrupts the flow of the narrative, when it is interjected, it is arresting in the best sense of that word. That is, it grabs our attention. In an ancient world without word processing, without bold or underline or italic print or italic font available, when a, a story is just happily marching along and then is suddenly there's interjected a song, it gets our attention. And it signals to us that what you've just read and what you are reading is incredibly significant. What you just heard matters a whole lot, so listen up and pay attention. It's almost an ancient form of the national weather alert system, right? You're you're driving down the road in the car, you're listening to whatever station, whatever music is on the radio, and then suddenly the music cuts out and you hear that, that obnoxious sound. Maybe you weren't really paying attention to what was on the radio a moment ago, but suddenly this interruption of sequence has got your attention, and you listen up. You realize that what you're about to hear is important. Now, this this literary feature is not wholly unique to the Bible. Lots of texts in the ancient world are replete with singing. This is a common feature of the ancient Near Eastern cultures and the genres and the writings that they produced. Oftentimes, these songs were a means of retelling the history of a nation's people, as well as poking fun of or denigrating their enemies. Uh, They could be polemical, as well as uh, a source of pride for the nation that they come from. And we see some of that going on here in the text tonight. If you look at it, the Song of Moses, verses 1 through 12, they deal with the Exodus event itself, which is now past. It's just happened. The children of Israel have been brought through the waters in the greatest single event, showing forth the redemption of God, the greatest single event in the Old Covenant period. And so those verses concentrate on that event, which has just now ended. Then, verses 13 through 18, they look forward to what's going to happen later on, to God conquering the land of Canaan and bringing the children of Israel into that land, the promised land. And all of the tribes and all of the peoples of the land of Canaan tremble in fear and melt away as God establishes his people in the promised land eventually. That's a future event. It has not yet occurred at the time that the children of Israel are singing of it, but it will happen. Now, outlining this passage is somewhat of a challenge, but look again at the content. If you look at verses 1 through 10, you see an emphasis on God's great triumph over the Egyptians. 
And then in verses 11, 12, and 13, we have an emphasis on the incomparability of God. And then in verses 14 through 16, Moses sings of the impact of the deeds of God on the peoples around them, the Philistines and the Moabites, the various peoples of the land who trembled when they see the deeds of God. And then in verses 17 and 18, he points to the future things that the Lord is going to do for Israel. And so there's history, there's poetry, there's prophecy, there's lyricism, there's theology, all wrapped up in these 21 verses. And let's admit, putting story, putting history, putting narrative to song often lends some weight and some pathos to an event. It lends a sense of gravitas. It's one thing to tell the story of our nation's founding. Right? There were some political papers filed over the issue of taxation without representation. We were occupied. We fought some bloody battles. And Betsy Ross sewed a flag, maybe. And the British came and tried to retake us in 1812, and it was grim. But eventually we pulled it off, and here we are, good old USA. That's fair history. But you know as well as I do, when someone starts singing... Oh, say can you see, there comes something of an emotional tug, a swelling of pride and loyalty, of patriotism and valor and honor that accompanies the story. Suddenly, those simple history facts take on a greater weightiness to our hearts and minds. Well, this text is, in a sense, a kind of national anthem for the redeemed people of God, of Israel. They've just lived their history, and now they're singing about it as their hearts swell with pride and gratitude and giving glory to the God who just accomplished this great redemption for them. And we've already studied at length the significance of what God did for his people. We've been thinking all along about that as we've been going through the Exodus miracles, and we thought about that this morning as we passed through the deep waters, through the actual Exodus event, going through the Red Sea. We've already taken a a good long look at those items, but I'd like to build on this theme of singing as we study this text of singing tonight. I was prompted by another pastor's insights on this text. I thought it was a useful and edifying way to approach this text, and so I thought we might do likewise this evening to build on this theme of singing and consider our text under three ideas. That is, why singing matters in Scripture what this singing tells us about God himself, and what this singing does in the hearts of his people. Why singing matters, what it tells us about God himself, and what it does in the hearts of God's people. So let's think through it along those three lines. So first, why singing matters in Scripture? Or if I could put it another way, what's going on here? Why is this lyrical interruption so significant? If you were to go through the Bible as a whole, you'll find over and over again that when God acts in a mighty way, often there is a response of song, of praise. Job chapter 38 verse 7 tells us that at creation, at the dawn of time, when all things were made by the word of God, Job says, the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. There was song at creation when God spoke the world into being. And when God saved his people Israel from oppression during the era of the judges, again and again they respond in song. For example, when Jabin and Sisera are defeated by Deborah and Barak in Judges 5, they sing a song of victory and celebration in praise of God who has delivered them. When God rescues David later on from the hand of King Saul, Psalm 18 
records his praises. David says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. See, for David, when God saves him, he sings. When God saves his servant, his servant sings. When Israel is restored to Jerusalem after their Babylonian exile, after their captivity in Babylon, they come back as the prophet Isaiah promised. And Isaiah 51, verse 11 says this, The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. Fast forward, the great climax, the high point, the epicenter of redemptive history is Jesus Christ, is it not? He is the central hub around which turns all of God's grand designs, around which orbits all of Scripture. And when Christ comes into the world in Scripture, we find all kinds of songs. Luke 1, 46, the song of Mary, the Magnificat, and the song of Zechariah, Luke 1, verse 67 and following. And when Mary finally delivers the Savior, the angels who sang with joy at creation, they now crescendo their song. You, you get a sense of almost fever pitch there on the plains outside of Bethlehem that day as they sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Luke 2, verse 14. Ye who sang creation's story now proclaim Messiah's birth. Later on, when Jesus is brought and presented in the temple, Simeon saw him, and he could not contain himself, and he bursts into song. Luke chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Jesus and his disciples in the upper room, the night in which he was betrayed, he tells them of his impending sufferings, and he reassured them of the promise of the Spirit until he returns. After they had celebrated the Lord's Supper, they went out. Scripture says they sang a hymn. And he departed inevitably to Calvary. And then at the end of all time, Revelation chapter 5, around the throne of the exalted Christ, there are countless numbers of angels with the triumphant saints singing praises. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And all creation joins in the song to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And we could give further proof texts beyond that. But here's the point that the Bible seems to be making. That is, when God acts in creation, and especially when God acts in salvation, in redemption, God's people sing. They sing. You see the situation in our passage as we're, as we're traveling to the Red Sea with the people of Israel, God has led Israel to camp between Migdol and the sea. They've got that Migdol fortress off to one side. Their backs are up against the sea. And suddenly the Egyptian army and the chariots are bearing down upon them. And there's no escape. Nowhere for them to run. Nowhere for them to turn. But God intervenes. He moves the pillar between Israel and Egypt. He parts the sea. The waters stand up like walls on either side and the people of Israel march on through on dry land. He delivers them. And as they make it to the far shore, they turn around and what do they see? They see the waters come crashing down and the Egyptian army is destroyed. God has vindicated 
his promises. He's delivered his people. He's destroyed his and our enemies, to use the language of the Catechism and the Confession. He has saved his people wonderfully. And there's really only one thing that Moses and the people can do as they're standing there with with mouths agape as they're taking it all in. Verse 1, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. And then down at verse 20, Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine and in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang. Notice Miriam's song there in verse 21. It repeats the first verse of the song of Moses and the congregation of Israel. So probably what's happening here is these are not two separate songs, but Miriam and the women with the tambourines are singing the refrain, if you like. This is likely an antiphonal song. One group singing back and forth to the other. The lead refrain there at verse 1. Miriam and the women sing it back there at verse 21. And notice what they're singing about. Verses 1 and 2. Sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. I love how Phil Riken puts it in his commentary on Exodus. He says this, The history of redemption is sometimes described as a drama, the drama of redemption. However, this drama is actually a musical. It is impossible even to conceive of biblical Christianity without songs of praise. Close quote. If I can put it this way, Christianity is a singing religion. Christianity is a singing religion. A Christian who doesn't sing is a contradiction in terms. God's salvation demands our song. Be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5, 18, 19, and 20. How? Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And just by way of brief application, let's realize You know, when we Christians get together in church, when we gather in this building, when we gather for worship, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, we do some pretty weird things, at least by the standards of our culture. A worship service is a pretty odd thing, if you think think about it, at least by the world's estimation. And in this regard, it's especially odd. Public group singing, which used to be quite common both in Europe and and North America. I mean, my goodness, even the Rotary Club, when they got together, would sing. They had different songs that they would, they would stand up and sing together before they sat down for their lunch. Men would often sing together. Not so much anymore. And so in light of that cultural reality, singing, congregational singing, has to be one of the strangest things we do. Strange in quotes, of course. One of the strangest things we do week by week by week. And to be honest... Brothers and sisters, there are times when the last thing we want to do is sing. There are times. Some of you are here carrying absolutely awful burdens. Some of you are grieving. Some of you, I know, are filled with all kinds of doubts and insecurities. Some of you are struggling with your own maladies and weaknesses and sicknesses. Some of you filled with anxiety and concern for loved ones. Some of you fresh from yet another wounding by sin, either of your own doing or by someone else's. Why should you sing? Why should I sing? I feel like utter garbage, like I've been trampled over by this world yet again, been dealt another heavy blow by God's hand. Why 
in heaven's name should I sing. I think the response of scripture, I think the testimony of all the Bible and God's people through the ages is seeing what has been won for you, how can your lips stay closed? Now this is not a guilt trip, by the way, to say sing louder or sing more beautifully. Actually, Covenant is one of the better singing congregations that I know of. I'm quite proud of our congregation. When the piano cuts out and we sing a cappella for a little bit, and I hear the singing. You don't just disappear. There's so many congregations I've been in where the accompaniment would go away and the singing would just fall away entirely. That doesn't happen here. I was talking with a brother just last week, and he was commenting how thunderous and strong the singing was just last Lord's Day, how stirred he was by hearing the songs of God's saints resounding throughout this building. No, God's people singing is a wonderful thing. And my point to you, Covenant, is well done. Keep up the good work. Keep on. But the larger point is sing his praises because you are God's people in season and out of season, in season of cheer and in time of gloom, in times of depression and in days of triumph because our salvation is worth telling Our salvation is not dependent upon our frame of mind. God's glory is not dependent upon our mood. And sing, sing, dear brethren, sing, beloved, because our God is most worthy of our praise. So that's the first thing we need to think about. Why singing matters according to Scripture. That's the first thing. Then secondly, what this singing tells us about God himself, more specifically here in our Exodus 15 passage. I don't know if you noticed this or thought of it this way as we were reading through it at the beginning of the sermon, but this song here in chapter 15 is almost like a theology textbook that gives us insight to God's attributes and character. It's clear from reading this passage that this is a personal God. See verse 2? The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My Father's God... And I will exalt him. My God, my strength, my song, my salvation, my Father's God. I am his and he is mine. I know him and he knows me. That there is intimacy and fellowship there in that description. It has been said that Martin Luther would often say something along the lines of there's piety in the pronouns. There's piety in the pronouns. A man's deepest sense of his theology comes out. That the man, excuse me, the rubber meets the road, so to speak, what he actually believes in the grammar of the possessives when he's describing God. God is not some mere abstract idea. God is not merely some theological formulae or articulation. But no, this is my God, he says. These are my people, she says. God's promises are my promises. I am his and he is mine. I love how one man puts it. If by grace you trust in Christ, God has sent his spirit to dwell in your heart, and you have a communion, a fellowship, that transcends anything Moses could ever guess at. It's one of the glories of the new covenant. As much as Moses had to sing about, you have even more to sing about, Christian. Even more to sing about as you have that fellowship and communion with this gloriously personal God. But that's just one attribute that this song tells about him. Notice verse 3. God is praised as a warrior God. Verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. 
Moses had told Israel in chapter 14 that God would fight for them. Recall, we learned about that last, or two Lord's Days ago, rather. Last week, Peter Zabo was preaching for us. The Lord would fight for them, and they had only to be silent. And here, as they look back over the waters under which these slain Egyptians now lay, they see that God keeps his word. God fought for them. And he triumphed, and thus Israel triumphed because God fought for them and triumphed for them. But it is a tough image for us today. Right? The, the love of God we're used to. A warrior God? Not so much. But actually, the Bible describes God as fighting for us. This isn't just an Old Testament concept. It's a New Testament concept. Colossians 2, verse 15. At the cross of Jesus Christ there, the greatest battle of all. And Christ our God, we're told by Paul, he won the victory, having triumphed over the principalities and powers, having disarmed them, having humiliated them, triumphing over them at the cross. One man puts it like this, your whole salvation rests on the truth that your God is a warrior God who fights for you, to make you his, and to deliver you from all his and our enemies by the cross of Jesus Christ. Praise God that your Savior is a warrior God. Close quote. That's another attribute. But look, there's more. They praise him, verse 6, for his mighty power. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. What a contrast that is to arrogant Pharaoh in verse 9. You see how Moses is recounting Pharaoh's demeanor, his attitude? I will pursue. I will overtake I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. God's response, don't you love it? Verse 10. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. (laughs) Pharaoh's arrogantly shaking his fist. I'm going to conquer them. I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to overwhelm them. I'm going to take them. God blows on them with a breath of his mouth, with a breath, and mighty Egypt is vanquished. Israel is witnessing and experiencing God's immeasurable greatness. Right? We've been in Ephesians semi-recently, a few months ago. You remember what Paul prayed for the believers there in Ephesus? That we and they would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us in Christ. God is a God of glorious power. And nowhere is that more supremely set forth than in Christ. Greater than the miracle of the Red Sea. Greater than that was the miracle of the empty tomb. But God conquered and he displayed his mighty power for them to behold and to witness. Verse 11, another attribute. Moses praises God for his uniqueness. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? That word holy, as you may know, essentially means separate, unique, distinct. There's no one like him. A category all his own. We praise God because he is the only God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and there is no other. And then God is praised for his love. Verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. The phrase steadfast love there, it's from the Hebrew word chesed. It means covenant love. This is the love of permanent vows. 
I once heard a wonderful definition of how to define hesed, how to define God's steadfast covenant love. I heard it from another pastor, and he put it like this. Chesed is God's stubborn, that is stubborn in a good way, that's fixed, dogged, stubborn determination to be true to his covenant and to be kind to your soul. No matter how long it takes him, no matter what it costs him, and no matter what you deserve. God's stubborn determination to be true to his covenant and to be kind to your soul, no matter how long it takes him, no matter how much it costs him, and no matter what you deserve. It is this love that gave birth to the reality that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's like taking a diamond or a precious gem and holding it up and turning it over and over again in the light, examining new facets, new angles, new splendors you see. So too Moses. Again and again, Moses traces the attributes of God, the character of God, the mighty works of God. And the more he takes in about who God is and what he's done, the more he sees of God, the more he's blown away. He sees each new facet shining in brilliance as he considers God's characteristics and attributes. And Moses sings. He can't help it. Moses is saying, behold your God Behold the glory and the beauty and the splendor and the majesty and the saving wonder of your God. Anyone who sees him must sing. So that's the second thing. First, why singing matters in Scripture. Second, what the singing tells us about God himself. And then finally, what the singing does in the hearts of his people. What the singing does in the hearts of his people. As much as there is a looking back in the collective mind of God's people, looking back and remembering what God has just done salvifically for them, there's also a looking forward. There's an anticipation of what he will do. And both of these things, both looking back and looking forward, both of these things stir up praise in their heart. Verses 1 and 12, that's looking back to the salvation that's already won. They, they look back on the crossing of the Red Sea and the judgment of Pharaoh's armies. But in 13 to 18, here we're looking forward to what God is yet to do. Israel is still very much in the wilderness. They've just gotten on the other side of the water. And it's going to be 40 years before they reach Canaan. Yet notice how Moses speaks with a confidence that the God who began the work will certainly complete it. And so he contemplates the terror of God's actions at the Red Sea, striking fear in the hearts of the inhabitants of Philistia, verse 14, and Edom and Moab and Canaan, verse 15. These other surrounding pagan tribes and nations. He thinks of the day when God will make the enemies of the people of God stand as still as stone till his people pass by them. And they finally come into the land of promise and into the, into the sanctuary that has not yet been built and where God's own presence will dwell. And the whole song climaxes on this universal declaration there in verse 18 that the Lord will reign forever and ever. Do you see, as God's servant is mindful of what God has already done for him, what God's already done in his own life and the life of his people, it drives him to look forward in confidence in what God will yet do. Because God has already been faithful in salvation, he trusts that God will be faithful still and that he will bring everything to pass that he has promised, everything to pass that he has sworn. There's a remedy for your soul. There's a weapon for the fight, Christian. Those of you who are continually plagued by doubt, those of you who are doubting even the security of, that's yours in Christ, those of you who are weary from battle, 
battle because of that sin that you keep fighting. It seems to keep having mastery over you. You're frustrated. You're angry. You're tired. Sin seems to keep winning, and your confidence is not any less shaky. Your spirituality, your piety aren't all that impressive. How do you know that he who began a good work in you will finish it at the day of Christ Jesus? How can you be sure that you will cross the finish line? How can you fight your fear and spiritual uncertainty? Well, simply, friends, we must do as Moses and the Israelites do. We must look back and see what our God has done. Look at what he's done. Who's to say he won't do it again and more to secure his people? How shall he who gave his own son not also along with him graciously give us all things? One commentator said this, There is no sin that festers in your heart that is a match for the love of God that gives Christ to the cross. Nor are there any trials that you may face today or in all the tomorrows ahead of you that are greater than the faithfulness of God. The proof you want? It is that the cross upon which Christ Jesus hung was to save sinners like you. It is that that tomb is empty for you, Christian. That that throne is even now occupied for you, believer, and he is even now interceding for you, beloved. See what God has done. Nothing can break the grip of him who holds you in the palm of his hand forever. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. So let's fight. Fight the good fight of faith. Remember God's mighty acts of grace in ages past and press on. And as we do that, I wonder if new songs of praise won't begin to help, by the grace of God, to put those fears to death. Bless the Lord for his word to us tonight. Let's all pray. Lord God, you are our strength and song. And in those moments when we doubt, we pray that you would bring to mind this your word, your promises, your covenant oaths which you have sworn. And by your spirit that you would strengthen our faith to believe and that you would grant us the grace, truly, to sing to the Lord a new song for wonders he has done. Make it so in all of us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.